Welcome to the Consumer Rundown Podcast, your destination for the people, companies, and trends transforming today's consumer markets. We are your hosts. I'm Penny. And I'm Dimitri. Today, we're talking to Ellie Lanning, the Managing Director at Camino Partners. Camino Partners is a business building and investment platform partnering with entrepreneurs to build enduring value with values. It co-founded Better For You Mexican food brand, Somos, and invested in companies such as Belgian Boys, Gimme Seaweed Snacks, and Cava Mediterranean Foods. Ellie pulls back the curtain on Camino's investment and operating philosophy, sharing insights on investing and brand building based on her experience in building and scaling kind. Ellie, it's great to have you on the podcast. Let's begin by taking a step back and I want to understand why you launched Camino Partners. Certainly. Thank you for having me. You can't really tell the Camino Partners story without starting with the kind story because Camino Partners is really being built on the back of our experience and that R is myself and Daniel Lubetsky, who was the founder of Kind, building and scaling Kind. For Daniel, from idea to what the brand is seen and known for today, I joined him very early in that journey when it was about a $10 million business selling six flavors of fruit and nut bars. And then actually many of our team members within Camino come from both different stages of Kind's growth and different functions. What we're trying to do with Camino is put that experience back to work with promising teams and entrepreneurs that we think are building brands and products and solutions that will improve consumers' lives. What experience from building Kind and scaling it do you think are helping you become great partners for the brands that you work with? One of the principles and design theories that we've had in building Camino is this idea of journey. And every business's journey will be different. And it requires unique thinking, unique execution mindset, we believe, to maximize the potential. And the reason that stood out as important to us is when we were on the operator side, we were often pitched this playbook approach do what this brand did. It was the vitamin water playbook because they had been the biggest success in the early 2000s. We just fundamentally did not believe in that approach. We believe in learning from others. We believe in looking at and figuring out what people did well, what could have been done better. But we also believe that every business, every team, et cetera, has unique decision set. And that that's where real value is created and just running someone else's play or taking their playbook and applying it to brand XYZ, we don't feel is the right approach to maximize potential and value. The way that that came to life for us at Kind was we talked about it all the time. We called it the and philosophy. And it was this idea that our brain is short-circuited to go to an or. We turn things into an either-or decision very quickly. But often if you stopped and you didn't allow that either-or decision and you said, okay, these are two opposing things, like how do I grow my margins and grow my business at the same time? How could I grow top line and pull back on trade spend? You can't do those things, your mind would tell you. And if you stop and you actually think about it, and you create the framework to find an and, you often can. That's the carry through from building kind to building Camino and putting that back to work with our partner companies. How's the strategy that you're implementing different than other growth equity firms out there? 
particularly growth equity firms focused on the consumer space? I think our point of difference really starts with who we are. We're operators first and foremost. We're innately builders. And so we don't come in and look at companies from a governance perspective. We're really rooting ourselves back in that CEO, founder, founding team seat to say, what do we see as the potential here? What are the strategies and sources of growth that if we were back in the seat of driving that business today that we would identify and set the organization up to go after? And we're really looking at it with an innate understanding of what the team and the sense across the table is doing. Understanding the seat of the partner companies, because we were there, I think is first and foremost what makes us different. And understanding that their stakeholder dynamic and what they're trying to manage too. And so the ability to empathize and think through that lens stands out as different. That said, we actually tend to think of it more like we're in the business of partnership and building and capital is an enabler behind that versus we're in the business of investing. And that sounds a little bit different. It doesn't mean that we're not seeking to create value and monetary returns. We are, but we tend to think of that as byproduct of the right propositions, the right team to go after it, the right executional excellence. We're also, I would say, really vetting those things out at the earliest onset. Like, How aligned are we as partners? What are the values that we operate with within our respective organizations? The one thing we can guarantee is things will not go to plan. And that can be in a good way. That can be in ways that surprise you for the better. And that can be in really big disappointments and setbacks. And so a values aligned group or groups working behind a business's potential can get through any of that. In a first meeting with us, it's often not about your key KPIs, et cetera. It's really about who are you guys as people? How are you coming together? What makes a founder wake up and do this every day? What makes his or her team come together and do that? And how much do we feel that there's synergy in in that way of operating? And then all the investment stuff happens kind of as a flow through or byproduct of that. There's a model that's becoming more popular. It's the venture studio model. Do you feel like you're pursuing that venture studio model or do you see yourself as more traditional growth equity? I would say one of our core values is to be entrepreneurial. That's in our blood. We think that real opportunity comes through flexibility at the same time. You get good at something by having a degree of focus. We are constantly trying to keep those things in balance. I would say we are both business builders and we have an example of that through our co-founding of Somos. And But then we have another arm, which is really to look at more growth equity investments, backing what we think are promising people ideas that have proof of market fit and expanded potential. We do a little bit of both, but in terms of a venture studio model where we've got ex-entrepreneurs and residents working on different ideas on a continual basis and then backing those, we don't. We don't have that aspect of our operation. 
And I think part of that is if you look at the kind story, that was an idea that was born from Daniel's personal frustration. It wasn't lab grown. The best businesses we see are a person's solving of a problem they had themselves. And I think it's hard to process that creation process. And so we haven't built that kind of creator studio for that. We more try to just stay in touch with talented entrepreneurs who are solution-minded, who we think have the probability of starting something that we could be a partner in someday. One of the core pillars that you mentioned in your marketing is being a values-aligned investor. What does that mean to your strategy, the types of companies and founders you want to work with? And how is that implemented post-investment as well? Our core values are leading with integrity. And that means doing the right thing when no one is looking, being entrepreneurial, setting yourself up to go after things that scare you, putting ambitious goals out there that you don't necessarily think are attainable, that might even be scary to talk about, but to go after them as a team, and then strengthening one another. And so that comes through our culture of transparency, respectful debate, We want to challenge and build on each other's thinking in every interaction. We we look for, and we would tell you, those are very similar values to what we had in place in, in building kind. And we think that's a difference maker in a business. When you are a small and emergent player in a category where there's bigger budgets, bigger companies, et cetera. Your human capital is, and, and how they behave together, that, that is your most critical kind of investment. And so what that means for us is we're looking at teams that show up in that similar way and that you can see it and you can authentically feel it in your interactions, not just with the founder, but when you look at the early days of KIND, If you had talked to Daniel, he's going to bed at night, waking up in the morning, thinking about all the opportunities and challenges that could lie ahead of kind. But if you called me, you would have found I was doing the same thing. And if you called any team member, they were doing that same thing. And it's because of those core values that brought us together as a team of co-owners. We feel you can really see that in a company early in its existence. That culture and those values have to be instilled from the top or they can be built from the bottom up? Everyone in a company is responsible for the culture, but they do have to come from the top. They have to be stated and restated, but more importantly, they have to be embodied and exemplified from from the top. Daniel made the decision to make us co-owners in kind, to call us that, to treat us as that. And some days that was probably the biggest pain in his ass because we got in the way of a lot of decisions that he might have wanted to make, but he made the space for it. He rewarded it. He invited it. You have to have that kind of endorsement and invitation from the top, but then the team and everyone within the organization has to step into that invitation and make it their own as well. When you talk to founders and you come across, I'm sure it's going to be a range of ages, of experience. Do you feel like 
there's a type of founder who thinks about this from the beginning or something that you as a partner help steer? I think a person's core values are largely shaped by a certain stage in life. And I think that you'd be hard pressed to have a person who subscribes to a certain set of personal values that then would create a business that employs a very different set of them. You need to know the people you're in business with. You need to know if there was decision X on the table and you weren't there, what judgment call do you think that they would make? Because ultimately that is what's happening. You're not there. You're not seeing every every juncture. You're not making all those kind of like tough moment game time decisions. That's where we try to really understand like who the person is. My first interview with him, I thought I was going to talk a lot about my work experience. And he wanted to know about my family and my relationship with my siblings. Stuff that I had honestly never been asked in a workplace. Um, So at first it was a jarring experience to say like, why am I talking about it here? Those are a lot of the aspects of who I am that would show up then in how I operate. Cultures are typically built, if you're talking about a founder-based business, especially so, around kind of the personal core values that individual has. It's an excellent point because I even think back to how we approach investing. The first conversation is about the numbers, about the product. It's less so about the culture. But you said, if you take a step back and think about it, what's going to make this company successful long-term? Hiring the right employees will wake up every day and work hard. It's the culture. And just from my own experience as well, where now I've worked over 10 years in a career and I've been part of cultures that were great cultures. I felt very motivated and been part of cultures that weren't that. And it's been a very dismotivating experience being a culture where you do feel like your opinions aren't valued, you're not rewarded, and there's no opportunity to make a contribution, make an impact. Mm-hmm. And I would say that my performance did suffer because of that, because of those external factors. It's interesting you say that we had a couple of team members that left at different points during the kind journey that were regrettable losses and that in a conversation and effort to retain them, why they were going where they were going. And there were some that were going to like bigger cultures that they knew were going to be different, that they wanted to change. They thought I can bring some of the kind way there and change this legacy organization. And wouldn't that be amazing? And one of the things I I had found a quote during that time, it made me really think about that. And it talked about how you often, you sometimes go to a culture with this idea of how you can change it and you can imprint it, but never overlook how it could change you and imprint you. And so I think that whether you're talking about an investment partnership or a place to spend your time for employment decision. We talked about writing a playbook, whether it makes sense to run a playbook that was run before to run it now. If you go back and you think about the kind playbook, can you run that same playbook now? And if not, what would have to be adjusted? What led to success for Kind was that every step along the way, we were very clear and focused on what the growth opportunity in that moment was. We tried to usher as many of the organizational resources against that and doing it with excellence. 
we had a few resources that we then had thinking out ahead and identifying the next sources of growth and then setting up the way to go after that. And all along that spectrum, answering those questions and then answering the questions, are we the ones best suited to do it? We being the team in the seat at that time. So I think that in general is what I often talk to teams about. Keeping those plates spinning in balance is a necessary part of driving fast growth and success. I call it strategic execution, strategic minded execution. That, I think, is an enduring way to think and operate. In terms of actual strategies, back in that time, it was like you launched with specialty retailers, and then you went into natural. And then if you performed well there, you would maybe get a mass customer or someone to to take you on, and you built your distribution footprint in that way. That no longer exists. You can launch online yourself. The mass retailers are fighting to be the introduction place for innovation. Actually, the entrepreneur's decision is now, in my view, harder and more important than ever because you can map that. There are choices that are available to you as an earlier stage entrepreneur that just generally weren't at that time. Like, how do you roll out from channel to channel? The way that decision was framed for us at Kind is no longer the same decision dynamic. But there are threads through how we thought about it that you could apply. A lot of founders that I talk to, they're first-time founders, first-time founders in CPG, who may not really understand all the different dynamics around strategy, around distributors. What's been your experience with this? There's actually a quote that it's in the first page of the book, Shoe Dog, which I have somewhere here. And I love it because it's so true. It says, in the beginner's mind, the options are many. In the expert's mind, there are few. I love that because it's so true. Experience is good, but sometimes it just paints a narrower picture than inexperience. I actually think resourceful founders can do it because I think they can imagine a different set of opportunities that someone who's been there, done that, or tried it maybe can't. And so they can paint a broader range of could do this, could do that, could do this, could do that. And then the most resourceful founders I have found are really good at then seeking out and bringing in experience to help them vet through that to then land on something that aligns with their gut. Most founders I've met are gut led and that's very important in the early days, I think. Would you say your approach to be gut led or be very quantitative data driven? And the trade up between having that intuition and that experience or say looking at the data and really just analyzing the data, what are the trade-offs from where you're sitting at? I usually talk about it in a way where I say we're insight-minded. And so if the polls are gut-led or data-driven, I think the midpoint is this idea of insight-minded. Unless you're doing truly, truly venture investing, pre-revenue, like idea and person, in that stage of investing, you're vetting the idea and the person and their ability to be resilient, to 
respond to marketplace feedback, to pivot and to push through. In that sense, then there's not a data set besides maybe you look at general market size, et cetera, and some kind of tailwinds. That's, I would say, the only range where you're not looking at some data. For us, we do want to see early marks of product market fit, even though we're still trying to pair that with some of those intangibles of the founder and or management team. Because even if you've got an early vector of growth, we know things are going to happen. And so how much is that team and that individual thinking about what could happen? There's like a healthy paranoia that you want to see and feel. And how much do you see that they think about that inherently themselves and then have the resilience, the action orientation, et cetera, to pivot when the challenge comes? What's the common reason that you say no to a founder? I would say we meet a lot of people that are earlier in their journey. More than anything, a lot of times our responses are not now, and we're trying to be a resource. It's been an interesting time to go from the operator seed to partner and capital provider because we're coming into the marketplace at a time where money was, in some cases, almost too easy to find. And in our view, had people not focused on some of the fundamentals and you had potentially an investor community or other forces that were saying, grow, 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 go after growth and figure out the other stuff later. And that was not the approach we took at Kind. Kind was profitable and cash flow positive from day one. Not easy to do, I understand, but it's an example of at least one. And actually, I have seen a couple of other businesses and founders who have done that, but they've done it only because they've been minded to do it. And I think that what we've seen a lot of in the last year is a lot of things in the marketplace where there's no path to seeing how it could be a sustainable business. And so, and the founder maybe doesn't understand every unit you're selling you are subsidizing the consumer purchase because your contribution margin negative. And the negotiation building blocks to greatly change that margin profile, we just can't see them. And so there have been a number of things that I would say we looked at in the last year or so that have had that dynamic. And unfortunately for us, it's just been hard to say there's a long-term durable future here with this financial profile. If you're a founder just starting out and you want to be profitable, tactically, what should you be doing? Work hard on your key agreements. If you are a, a supplier of a good, if you're prepaying for that good and you're not collecting from the customer you're reselling it to for 60-day window, you're always going to be needing cash to finance that. So you could even get to a stage where you're profitable, but you're requiring cash consumption. What I would say is focus on that out the get-go. Daniel talks about the process of the three C's. There's the creation process, and that's where it's the idea, the creativity, the problem that you're trying to solve. And the idea for your business is born in that stage. Once you sharpen that, you need to move into what's called the critic phase. And that is where you are the person that tears down your own idea. 
You try to think of everything and every reason why it's not going to work out. And you either then adapt your idea to answer some of those things, or you have ideas that will overcome some of those obstacles that you've identified. And once you do that, you go into what he calls the crusader phase. And I think that's really important because people often miss that middle step. And I think in that middle step is where you really pressure test some of the things of like, do I have the right kind of price value equation here? Is the solution or the product I'm offering worth it to the consumer for what I need to charge to have a sustainable business profile? And as best as you can tear down and try to attack that idea, the stronger you and your idea will come out of it. And so I think I would encourage people to do that. And then, by the way, then if you are raising funds, I think doing that approach also sets you up best for potential investor relationships. Because yes, we want to hear about why your idea is the greatest idea since sliced bread. But we also want to know that we're working with someone who sees what, if someone's ever like, I don't have a competitor, scariest thing ever to hear. We look for people who are minded that way, because if you can see the vulnerabilities in your own business, you're the one who's most likely to close those gaps and solve them maybe before another marketplace entrant does. Hopefully you don't come across a lot of founders who think they don't have competitors, especially (laughs) within consumer. Especially within food. We have one stomach, right? So we're all fighting for share of mouth and stomach. Do you think generally founders price their products too low? As in what I see a lot of, we're going to get in there, we're going to establish a beachhead, going to build volume. As we scale up volume, margins will eventually catch up because we'll have better pricing for manufacturing. That's where the volume uplift is going to happen is through scale and pricing changes through manufacturing. Do you think that mindset is a mistake? I think it's an easy way to start and believe that that's there. I think it's harder to then go after and prove out. When we talk about price, very easy to bring price down, virtually impossible to increase price. That's where I say probably one of the most sensitive dynamics you can think through is the price value ratio. There's an equal danger in overpricing yourself. Great, you have 100% margin of a product that no one's going to buy. That's not a good business either. And so you really have to kind of find that sweet spot. And I think even running the risk of pricing slightly higher and having some ability to do frequency of promotion, maybe lower like depth promotion is a better place to start. And then I would always just tell entrepreneurs, if you think that your volume is going to get you 10 points of margin, cut that in half for what will be actualized. From your vantage point, what are you most excited about that's going on within consumer in the next 18, 24 months? I don't think it's any one category of products or anything that I would talk to you about. I think some of this like return to fundamentals is going to be a really great thing for the consumer and for the industry. There are many things where that, that abundance of cash, it bred overlooking what's a sustainable margin profile out the gates, et cetera. 
I'm a big believer in consumer choice, but it created an overcrowded marketplace in a lot of areas. I think there are a lot of people who came into this space and were building business around like point of differentiation around brand alone. That's a really tough recipe. We really think the best brands are supported by product differentiation, service differentiation, et cetera. And so I think you're going to see a return to that. And ultimately, it's a better marketplace for true consumer solutions. I actually think some of the freeze up in capital availability will bring about a consolidation, which don't mistake me, I don't love that idea. I know that there's there's livelihoods lost, capital lost. That's not a pretty picture for anyone, but I think it's the unfortunate every action has an equal and opposite reaction. I think that's the stage that we're in with what has been the marketplace of the last five or so years. I think this is a topic that we could talk about probably for at least a couple of hours. But I think we've come to a point that's a good time to wrap up. Ellie, thanks for joining us. It was great to meet you. Great to chat with you. Thank you. This concludes our episode with Ellie Lanning, the Managing Director at Camino Partners. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes of the Consumer Rundown podcast and visit us at consumerrundown.com. See you next time.